Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you've just clicked the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Krista Jones has almost 15 years of government relations and political experience in the D.C. metro area. Krista has worked on Capitol Hill and served as a registered lobbyist for two major associations. Virginia Leadership Institute was created in 2006 with the specific goal of increasing the number of black elected officials to 500 by 2026. Since that time, they have trained close to 250 people and expanded their mission to include increasing the number of black appointed officials and the number of enrolled in leadership development programs. VLI has conducted a number of programs and events into their agenda with the goal of diversifying the voices at the political table, resulting in better public policy for us all. She is a graduate of the George Washington University School of Political Management, Sorensen Institute of Political Leadership and Leadership Arlington. Krista has served on numerous boards and commissions for civic and professional organizations and is currently the National Director of the Social Action for Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated and serves on the Government Commemorative Commission honoring the contributions of women of Virginia. She was featured in the May 2014 issue of Ebony Magazine and named a Leadership Arlington Top 40 Under 40 in 2014. Krista Jones, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Good evening, everyone. Uh, well, thank you, Krista, for joining us. Um, I'm really excited about this show because, um, you know, activism has become sort of um, a trend 
you know, and everyone is out there with their opinion and, you know, trying to take it as far as they, they could possibly do that. But you have something that you've put together that I believe that is the real crux of, you know, real change in our society. And just tell us a little bit about um, the Virginia Leadership Institute and what you guys do. Well, I've been running VLI for the past 11 years, and our goal is to specifically increase the number of black elected and appointed officials. So we started off working um, in Virginia, and we decided that, you know, there weren't a lot of programs that were doing exactly what we were doing, you know, not only training candidates, but giving them the tools they needed um, to succeed in their communities. When they're at that table, what do they say? How do they get there? How do they network? And mm. so we expanded our mission to work in other states, uh, mainly now in the D.C. metro area, but doing other work in some other states as well. So we try to prepare African Americans for political leadership through training, tracking, mentoring, and networking. You know, a lot of political programs focus on a class structure, which I think can be very helpful. Sometimes they're a weekend long. Sometimes they're six months to a year long. But what we found is that if you really want to focus on those skills that you need to work on to become a political leader, you need – sometimes you just need some hand-holding, some mentorship, you know, Mm -hmm. someone who can follow up with you regularly – so that is really the basis for our um, ideology for how BLI runs. Wow, that's great. So, you know, you have a background in politics. And, um, you know, what was it about what you experienced in your work that helped you to decide that this was something that was needed and, you know, gave you the, the full concept that you would need to be able to put something like this together? Well, it's actually a different combination of experiences. You know, I, when I was younger, I was involved in cheerleading, sports. I was in that team environment. I was mm-hmm. active in the NAACP Youth Council, so I was working with teams, learning how to run a meeting, learning how to be an advocate, you know, in high school. Um, I went to college, continued that. I was director of an organization at the University of Florida called Students Taking a- actually a student government agency called Students Taking Action Against Racism. And, you know, that is really where I started to think about the fact that when I, when I would try to take an issue as big as racism and realize that while a lot of other organizations were taking a reactive approach, it was important that we try to take a proactive approach. And there was education mm-hmm. and diversity training we could bring to the campus. And that was really the seed, I think, being planted in terms of how it would go on um, to develop my own thoughts about leadership development. So after University of Florida, I, um, there were two things that happened. I was working as a legislative assistant for the American College of OBGYNs, really got excited because I got to watch C-SPAN every day, got to interact with lobbyists, got to learn just the whole culture of the Hill, but found that there weren't a lot of people that looked like me really making those decisions and, and at the table. Then mm-hmm. I went and joined the Peace Corps. And so that was an opportunity for me to just be placed in a community They gave you some training, but you had to decide what needed to be done. So all of that really led up to me getting my master's degree at the George Washington University. And my professor said, why not focus your thesis? I was writing a paper on the lack of black congresspeople in Virginia. And he Mm. said, well, instead of focusing on the problem, why not try to focus on making it a purely academic paper? Why not develop a blueprint to solve the problem? Wow. So that's how BLI was formed. And, you know, through my thesis, you know, some things, I talked a lot in my thesis about voting attitudes, um, which I don't do as much now. We're focusing more on the training and the mentoring. But I think a lot of those early topics that I was thinking about when I was writing really come into play when it, when it comes time to get African-Americans elected. So from then on, it just blossomed, and all my experiences along the way and boards and commissions and other political leadership roles, working in political parties, that all really formed and shaped the direction of Virginia Leadership Institute to where it is today. Wow. Okay. And, and give us some of the bullets you think that your Virginia Leadership Institute resolves. You, you mentioned some of them. Are there some others as well? Because – it looks like, again, it's based on solving problems and giving support where 
support is needed to be able to, you know, turn the tide on this uh, this drought of um, African Americans in government and in leadership roles, and then you know, so tell us a little bit about some of those things that you discovered along the way. Well, you know what I well, like I said, you know, you hear a lot about training programs, and you think that you know is going to be the cure. You put someone in a classroom for a day, you teach them how to fundraise, you teach them how to do grassroots, they become a candidate, they run and they win. And you know what I realized is that one thing is that when you just get first of all, when you get African Americans together or people together who are interested, like you said in the beginning, activists and advocates and politicians, they start to find out what their needs are immediately. And so, mm-hmm. although what we're, we're teaching great information in the class, what I love to see is when you have people say, "Oh, could you be my campaign manager?" Because the thing is, some people go through this program and they don't want to actually run for office, and that's fine. But you find people, oh, can you work on my campaign? Oh, can you connect me to this particular donor? So I started to see those connections being made simply by getting these people in the same room together. Um, And additionally, you know, I found that just by us existing and people seeing the mission, particularly when there weren't a lot of groups doing this. Now there are a few more organizations specifically training African-Americans to run for office. But in 2006, 2007, you've got to remember, we didn't even have Barack Obama yet. He was elected right. in 2008. So just by people seeing our mission, they were like, wow, I could run for office. Didn't even have to necessarily go, for a, go to a class. But just by our pure existence, we were exciting people and opening up their minds to the idea that they could run. Additionally, you know, a lot of times in politics, in the black community, I found that, you know, if your parents were engaged in the community, your parents were elected officials, it became a family affair, which is great. So we're starting to open up people's minds. And also, one of the things we learned along the way is that we knew in the beginning that we not everyone would want to run for office. That's just not everyone's bailiwick. So people also wanted to come to our classes to learn how to be campaign professionals, which is also equally as important. Because for someone like me, I'm not sure if I want to run for office, but I've observed, I've worked for black candidates and white candidates, and I really think that being at that table around that strategy campaign table as an African-American political consultant or campaign staffer, that can also impact in the long run as well. It's more than just the candidate. It's his positions. It's what's, what events he goes to. You know, it's his whole appeal you know, that can help as well. And those people who are, quote, unquote, in the background, which people always tell me I love you, they love me in the background, that's important as well. But then also along the way, we realized that leadership development programs were so key, and that's, again, where a lot of the magic was happening. So when I say mm. leadership development programs, I mean Leadership Arlington, Leadership Fairfax, Florence uh, Institute for Political Leadership. We're still we're underrepresented African Americans in those as well, and those are often the stepping stones to being either campaign staffers, appointed officials, or elected officials. So we started giving scholarships to African Americans who wanted to get that basic training, and because sometimes those courses can be very expensive. A lot of times, you're lucky if your job will pay for it for you if they see it as a benefit. But we started giving a small scholarship to help with that. And then lastly, appointed positions. So as I started to say, you know, some people kind of get, okay, we should run for office, we should make a change, but they don't realize, how do I even get an appointment? That's something that no one really ever talks about, and it's a varying degree of difficulty depending on where you live and what level you want to come in at. Um, so just and sometimes it's it's super easy, and again, that's another stepping stone to possibly running for office, and it's also another opportunity just to be at the table. You know, I was talking with um, an elected official from Arlington a few years ago, and she said, "You know what? I really want your help in getting more African Americans and younger people to be um, up for these appointments." She said, often it is just the same type of person, older, white male, and they are making key decisions that are affecting our communities. They're advising the county board, the city council, or if it's the state level, the governor or different secretaries at the state level on the direction of policy, and they don't get enough attention. So, you know, we have a lot of people who who feel like that would be a better fit for them, and that's just as important as being in elected office. 
Wow. And and so how do you make the point to younger people that this is the way, you know, that they really ought to look at, you know, being on the other side of the table, so to speak, as not being um, – and I think maybe some people may think of it this way um, – with the establishment instead of against it. How, how do you define that for them? You know, I think that it might have been a little bit harder before November mm-hmm. of 2016, but I think <laughs> that after that election, people, it a light bulb went off. I mm. think there are so many people, different races, male, female, LGBT, straight. I mean, I just think the light bulb went off and people saw We've got to do this. You mm-hmm. know, unfortunately, you know, some people it was, if he can do it, I can do it. And with other people it was, we need to stop going on. And I think with other people, they realize there's a training ground. Now, just because our current president was never served in elected office, I think people started to realize that sometimes you've got to get in on the ground and either promote or stop those people who you don't want to get elected. You know, I'll never forget, I was campaigning for a candidate in 2007, and he was running for local treasurer. And when I was going door to door, there was someone who asked me, they said, how does he feel about choice, abortion rights? And I thought, why do you care what the treasurer feels about abortion rights? That's not something that he's going to have to deal with at a local level. And he said, well, you know what? Just because he's running for treasurer today, he wins. He's going to run for state legislature. He's going to run for Congress. He's going to keep going up. And if he doesn't agree with what I agree with, Mm. I want him stopped early. So I think that whole, you know, system and understanding that pipeline, I think more and more people are catching on. So, you know what, I don't think it's much of a problem anymore to get younger people involved. I think we did it last year. Wow. That's awesome. And tell us some of the ways you actually reach out to the community and some of the the programs that you have set up, because as I went through the website, man, they were so multifaceted as far as things that you guys can provide resources, training, and and the whole ball of wax. Definitely. You know, and I will be honest, I'm the person on our board who's always trying to get us to focus on the training. And I only say that in the mentoring, I only say that because I believe in focus. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted a laser focused mission, because I knew that as we started to broaden we would get away from that focus. And I, and I felt, always felt that trying to get people elected seemed a little bit harder than the activism and the advocacy work that we're used to. We know we should vote. We know we should knock on doors. We know we should call our congressmen. But getting people to think, oh, wow, I need to raise money. I need to get the skills, you know, to to speak up in front of people. I need to learn the policies and actually run for office and make that commitment. That was a bit different. So along the way, I've always been making sure that we focused on that mission. But we've done a lot of interesting programs. We've honored people in the community because I want them to be seen as role models. We've talked about important issues like education and how African Americans are at the table on those issues. And we're really excited about a program that we're having and partnering with the George Washington School of Political Management. I'm a graduate of that program. And we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion in Northern Virginia and the future of Northern Virginia and how African Americans have and should play a role. And we're excited because we're having three great panelists. Two of them have been impacted by Virginia Leadership Institute, two of the elected officials, and then we have a local community activist in Arlington. And it's really important that VLI take, you know, the clout that we have in the community, take our ability to bring together these power players and these thought leaders and talk about these important issues. And it's related, you know, like I said, I like to be focused, but it is definitely related to the issue of these African-Americans getting elected. These are issues that when we say a seat at the table, this is what they're discussing. This is why you need John Chapman from the Alexandria City Council. This is why you need, you know, Phyllis from um, Loudoun County Board of Supervisors You need those African-Americans at the table making decisions about economic development, transportation, um, affordable housing. Their voices and their past experiences make a difference. So us having these issue forums is uniquely, you know, 
tied to the role and the importance of us making sure that African-American policy at the table. Wow, that's great. And tell us a little bit more about the date of this issue form as well as um, the location. So this will be on June 20th. Um, it'll be from 6.30 to 7.30, we'll be having this panel discussion. Um, and then from 7.30 to 8.30, we're going to have a, recept- a networking reception. And it's going to be at the um, Arlington campus of George Washington University on Glebe Road. And it was really important in, in the Boston area of, of Arlington. And actually, that's very apropos because Boston right now is going through a huge revitalization or redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Are mm-hmm. African-Americans, are, there, are, are they using minority contractors to execute those projects? For the jobs, are African-Americans engaged that way? It's right by the Boston Metro. How is that transportation or any changes that are being made to that area? How, are those, how is that going to affect African-Americans? Affordable housing. How is this revitalization going to impact affordable housing in Arlington? You know, so these are all key issues that African-Americans need to be at the table to discuss whether they're an elected official or not. Um, but, yeah, we'll be in Boston on June 20th. Um, and we're really excited about this program. And one of the things you mentioned about the, your your program and the training is um, a lot of times people will, you know, become a part of this, but they may find that they may not want to run for office, but still be a part of the political process in some other areas. And um, how how does that trickle down? How How is that? Is it something that happens organically just by that person seeing what's around them and moving, or is there guidance in that as well? Well, we provide, um, you know, I'll just tell you a little bit more about how we are structured. We sure. have political, comp- political leadership competencies. So they these are things that we have identified with our boards of advisors and our boards of directors over the year and political experts as key skills that you need to be successful as a political leader. And political leader is defined as everything from appointed official, elected official, campaign staffer, et cetera. So a political political leadership competency includes everything from public speaking, fundraising, grassroots operations, executive presence, influence, community leadership. And so if someone comes to me and they they usually kind of know Now, I always try to push back on the argument because so many people like to say, I just want to be in the background. I don't want to run for office. Well, I like them to – I try to push them on that um, because I just don't want someone saying they don't want to run just because – and I often ask them why, and you can guess that the reason is is because they think, oh, I have so many skeletons in my closet and I'll never be able to run for office. Well, I, I always go back and say, you know what, you have to think about how many elected officials there are across the world. And what you're hearing, these horror stories of elected officials, and you're seeing a few who are in the news because of X, Y, Z, that's just a small portion. So I try to first allay some of their fears about that. But then, you know, I try to, they do um, an analysis, and they rank themselves on where they believe that they lie, um, how, they, how they rate in certain areas. So we focus on those specific skills. And so then usually they've had a certain amount of life experience, and I try, to, I try to get them connected with, like I mentioned earlier, mentors and people to offer consultations. And they can kind of talk them through that process of, well, is an elected official, is running for office appropriate for me? So right now we're actually doing a pilot program for our first VLI fellowship. We have about eight people who represent everywhere from Texas to the Tidewater area to Maryland. And these are all people who think that they might want to run for office. And so they're getting consultations from people, and they're able to talk to an elected official, and they can say, you know what, this is my experience. You know, you may like it, you may not, et cetera. So we really try to give them the opportunity to meet with the right people, give them the right skills and the right information to kind of make that decision. But a lot of people do start off, you know, kind of knowing already whether they want to run or whether they want to serve on a commission. Wow, that's great. And, you know, that, that was really interesting. And, I mean, you really laid it out for me. It was very comprehensive. And, and that's what I would assume would have to be the case in order for you to be able to provide the kind of services that I saw there on the website. And um, it, it's just amazing that um, a lot of people sort of pigeonhole 
um, a lot of things that you can do as far as leadership and politics and running for office into some smaller, you know, boxes, so to speak. And you really broaden that by talking about some of the, the other um, avenues that one can take, especially after being able to get close enough to uh, the real process to see where they may have a talent or feel more comfortable. Definitely. And, you know, that's exactly why um, we are sponsoring this program with, on June 20th, with the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington, because, like I said, that is where the whole idea for VLI was sparked. I learned a lot of great work. So I used to be a lobbyist, um, and that's that's yet another way that you can Mm -hmm. be involved in the political process. It's so important. But it was great for me because and this is why this program was so impactful. I got my master's in legislative affairs. During the day, I was on the Hill lobbying, and then I was able to go to class at night and really strengthen some of that and some of those uh, skills that I was learning. And my professors worked on the Hill, or they worked for OMB. And so it was just a really great experience. But one of the reasons why it was really important for us to co-sponsor this with the Graduate School of Political Management, and we want to do more work with them, is because, again, African Americans are not. Um, well-represented in that program. And I actually participated on a panel um, for the George Washington Black Alumni Association a few weeks ago, and it was a panel of firsts. And, you know, we think I may be one of the first organizations of this kind to have been created. Like I said, there are several more Mm -hmm. now. But Mm -hmm. it was great to have that conversation, but it was sad because a woman came up to me and she said, you know, I did this program back in like the 80s, and I think she think she said she was the only African American. You would have people stand up and say, "Yeah, we did the program, but we were the only black person in our whole class." So this is yet another way we're providing one set of training services, but this is yet another way to help prepare African Americans to be lobbyists, run for office, or be campaign professionals. And you know, we we all hear this term lobbyist um, quite a bit, but um, it's not very often we get a chance to really speak to someone who is speaking about what they do as opposed to the cause that they are actually lobbying for. So give them mm-hmm. a broad view of what a lobbyist is and, and what you actually do. So a lobbyist is someone who educates. And I think, you know, I, I have to say I love President Obama. I think he did a fabulous job. But one of the things, one of the misconceptions uh, that I think he helped propel during his campaign and when he first I don't know if a lot of people remember this but he I think he made some comments like he was going to you know get all the lobbyists out of Washington or something like Mm -hmm. not employ lobbyists or something like that and that was just horrible because I think people need to understand the positive role again people get they get a bad rap because they hear you know Jack Abramoff or just a few bad lobbyists but you need lobbyists are experts they're educators they both they they can do it in two ways. Now you have some lobbies who work for firms that, you know, they go, you know, and they speak to um, elected officials, they speak to Congress, the Senate, and, and this is at all levels. You've got lobbyists from local to the federal level, and they educate that elected official about their organizations, firms, et cetera, issue. And then you have – now, these people are all registered lobbyists, but you have people that work more on the, quote, unquote, nonprofit side, and that's more what I did. And we, in addition to going to the Hill to educate members of Congress, we also had to educate our own membership. So I worked for both the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Psychological Association. So we did things like organized lobby days we would do webinars or calls, we would send out, you know, action alerts, we would do all types of things to internally educate our members on the importance of advocacy and to how to bring their story, how to go and tell their story. Because at the end of the day, elected officials really want to hear from their constituents. And so you may develop a relationship as a lobbyist with elected official and the staff of the elected officials, but they want the people who can vote for them and are who are more likely to give to their campaigns in their office. So we had to bring them to the Hill as well as registered 
lobbyists bring them to the Hill and have them tell their story to their members of Congress or people on the appropriate committee about an issue that they were trying to influence. So in my work as, in being a lobbyist, a lot of it was coalition building, working with other organizations was key. So I was at the American College of OBGYNs at a time when there was the fight over um, Plan B emergency contraception and getting it over the counter. And so there was this huge educational effort that we had to play as doctors along with the other abortion rights or choice organizations about, you know, what's the difference between the morning after pill and the abortion pill and the regular pill and all that. So that was an educational effort that we had to do in concert with other organizations. It was always great to have an, a doctor's organization at the table because we offered a different level of legitimacy and credibility that the other organizations may not have. But then again, um, it was sometimes contentious because um, we couldn't always do play the advocacy activist role that some of the other organizations were able to. So as a lobbyist, it was dealing with all of that type, uh, all those dynamics. Um, Like I said, it was in educating our members, teaching them how to tell their story and come to the Hill. And then you had to develop that relationship with those staffers. And then there's a whole other side, which is the the political fundraising or the monetary side that people get really, that has really, I think, um, done a disservice in a lot of ways to our um, political system. But I do think Still, I don't think of it as bribing, and some people think of it that way, and I'm not going to say that never happens. But really, when you're talking about political action committees and you're talking about holding fundraisers for elected officials um, and their campaigns, you need that access still. Money buys access when it comes to politics in this country. And that's a whole other conversation because really – I often tell – so a lot of times I'm asked to speak to 501c3 or other nonprofit organizations about advocacy, and there's a whole lot of things that they can't do. A lot of times those organizations don't realize what they can do, but there's a, they're often very scared. Mm. What I always like to say is there is a whole other layer when it comes to money, and even if you're a particular organization, like, for example, if you're with the sorority and they're going on the Hill, it's a nonprofit, they can't – you know, talk about political fundraising, et cetera. When you go home in your communities, I strongly, I always recommend you should get involved in a campaign of the candidate that you want to support. You should give a monetary to no, donation because that buys access. Mm, wow. And, and this is really how the game is played, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And, you know, and that's interesting too, because, People do want to weigh in. They want to start somewhere and they want to be effective in whatever they do. And I think people have become frustrated with, you know, the things that they do that seem to not get the the attention or the actual um, effect that they want. You know, people want change. They want to do something that is not repetitive and, and doesn't seem like they're just wasting their time and their actions. And um, a lot of these issues, too, are so um, emotional that people are just doing what others do just because they they hope it will make them feel better. But, you know, when you really get down to it, it's all about our, our laws and our policies and some of the things that we can do to affect change is to have the right people representing us. And, again, they have to hear our voice and we have to know that we have access to them on the back end. That's right. That's right. And you know what? Honestly, um, I was, you know, one of the elected officials I worked for, she was honest and she said, you know, I don't have a lot of minorities and women coming and knocking down my doors to um, get access to me, to help them get them a job or to talk about other job openings. She said, I want you to go out in the community and tell people that we're trying to get a diverse set of opinions, and we don't want just the same people coming to us. This particular elected official also uh, tried very hard to make sure the staff was diverse. You know, I was the outreach director, so had to go out into the community, all the different communities. But, I, you know, I just bring this up because I think there are some elected officials that really see the value of diversity and making sure that their opinions 
come from a lot of different voices being heard. Um, and it's just important that those who are not that open, we have to force them to be. We really do. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you don't have diversity, you, you sort of close off, um, you know, a stream of communication and information from the community. Someone will really always do. be left out. Yeah. Yes, you do. You really do. And, you know, often we don't think about the effects of that until it's too late. When you're around that table and you have an important decision to make and you realize, wow, we didn't consult with anyone that didn't look like us. So it's just so exciting now to see so many more groups, you know, focused on that. And like I said, that's what VL, that is, that's our purpose is to get more African-Americans. We promote diversity, period, around the table. But we really want to get, you know, we feel that African-Americans often have a unique perspective, and we're totally nonpartisan. I haven't said that yet, but we are a nonpartisan organization. Um, oftentimes, African-American voices, not to say we're monolithic any means. I know we're not. But oftentimes, we have Are you raising your hand? Are you standing up for the voices in your community? That's a very key part that we need to continue to talk about as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's all about being effective again. And um, okay. you need to be able to find a way to put your best foot forward. And um, who would who would have thought that there was something out there like this that can actually help someone who's passionate about anything that involves themselves and their communities that could help them to really get things done? And I think it's just phenomenal. Yeah, and, you know, I should also say that, you know, when we were kind of going through, you asked what along, what lessons have I learned along the way to kind of shape the organization. Um, you know, we, we know that the NAACP exists. We know that the Urban League exists, and, and they, they operate in a certain way. But I just – I always like to look at it as taking it to the next, the next level. Um, you know, there – and a lot of other social service organizations exist as well. Now, we're often taught that service and social action is about things like, for example, in a community, one way to serve the homeless, if there's a problem with um, homelessness, is to pa actually go and pass out soup or pass out food or to pass out toiletries that they can use. That's one level of impact. We can impact the situation, the homelessness situation in another community by advocating for that homeless shelter. We're the regulation, you know, we've had, it's been in the news, I was actually on the board for an organization called um, ASPAN, which was, you know, work to prevent homelessness and serve homeless people in Arlington. And there was some pushback when Arlington County tried to build a homeless shelter in a certain neighborhood. That's the type of thing where that's where that impact can be a bit different is you can advocate for having that homeless shelter in a certain place or funding for that homeless shelter. It's the policy, the political impact that we also need to think about as well when we talk about that whole definition of service. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. And um, it's interesting, too, because you really um, took that straight line towards what you are actually doing now. Um, you said you actually had worked for the Peace Corps as well. Um, that's an experience I think a lot of people overlook too, and especially our young people, and especially in our African American community as well. Um, tell them a little bit about um, the Peace Corps and what a benefit it is. So I have to say, you know, they say it's the toughest job you'll ever love, and I definitely agree. And I have to say, you know, my whole the way I got into the Peace Corps is probably a little bit different from a lot of people. Um, you know, my dad and my stepmother would say. When, so my stepmother was really the person that kind of brought up the idea of the Peace Corps because I never saw those commercials. People talk about the commercials they would play at 1 o'clock at night or whatever for the Peace Corps. I never mm -hmm. saw those. Um, they, and it just so happened the years that I was at the University of Florida, they didn't do a big push. So I was not exposed to the idea of joining the Peace Corps and barely knew what it was until after I graduated from college. So I came to D.C. As I said, I worked for a year for the American College of OBGYNs before I joined the Peace Corps. And I um, ended up applying. It was, a, it was a simple application process. Basically what happens is that you pick the region 
and they'll pick the particular country based on the particular project. So I ended up going to Paraguay, South America, and I served for two years plus three months of training. It was one of the most transformational experiences of my entire life. And so I did the Municipal Services Development Program, which basically was democracy building. So, like I said, you do training. They put you in this community. You don't really know anybody, and you have to get to work. So you have to do the community analysis. You have to meet the leaders and the movers and the shakers and the thought leaders. You need to figure out what, where the gaps are, and you have to use your training and all of your experience that you've gained in that 20, you know, two years of life. Cause even though you can be a Peace Corps volunteer up until whenever, there's no age limit, but obviously most of them are right out of college. So you go into the community and you, and you try to impact. So with my particular program, this is why I say it really did impact what I'm doing later on, is because with democracy building, Paraguay was under a dictatorship, um, a dictator named Strassner, for over 30 years. It ended in the early 90s. They brought the Peace Corps in in the late 90s, mid to late 90s, with the goal of rebuilding or building this democracy. And that was a challenge because you had people who, when they were under, under, what they knew is they knew protection, they knew safety, they knew comfort, they had the basics under a dictatorship they were taken care of. It wasn't as mm. important to them that their vote didn't matter, but now mm. they're in a democracy and there's mayhem, there's crime, there's, you know, and you're trying to tell them, but it's a democracy, it's better. They're thinking about what about the food on my table? What about the crime out in my streets? I, to me, it looks like a dictatorship is better. So you had to go through that whole mental shift with a generation. And what we kind of determined or what I determined was that, Unfortunately, you almost had to write off that older generation, and you had to work with the young yeah. people you, right. because they didn't grow up in that, right? So they're hearing about what's going on in America and what's going on in other countries across the world, and so they're kind of understanding more what a democracy is and, and the benefits of it. But it was exciting because I worked a lot. I worked with two major projects. I worked with a radio station, and when you're in a dictatorship, the first thing they do is what? They cut down communication. So this radio station was a community radio station. It was basically a community organization. And they would go through the streets, you know, reporting on different things and organizing events. And they were really seen as the center of the community. But what was really exciting was to see the young man. It was a couple that owned the radio station, Raphael and Nelida. And it was great to see Raphael come out with his microphone outside of the city council meeting and him be able to ask the intendente, which is what they call the mayor, ask him directly, what did you talk about? Or actually go into the meeting and tape it. That was unheard of in a democracy. Having people actually communicate what was going, we take it for granted, C-SPAN, whatever, you know, city council meetings are all televised and publicized and they have been for years. But that was exciting to see that in 2000, 2001, to see, you know, their delight in being able to do that now, to really report to the community about the things that it was no longer in a closed door, behind closed doors. The other major project I got to work on was student government. And it was great because, like I said, you almost had to write off that older generation and you had to focus on the kids. And it was teaching them things like a secret ballot standing up and giving a platform, you know, the basics of our electoral process, we were able to teach them all through the, what we know as a student government. So being in the Peace Corps was, was excellent because it really helped me learn how to just, like I said, go into a community and get started, identify a need, build those relationships, and get things done. And I am even able to today, and that's the interesting thing, with Everything that's going on now, and while I'm focused on trying to get people to run for office and go into political leadership positions, I'm realizing there's a lot of basic civic education that we don't quite understand yet or, or not quite there. So I'm having to kind of go back to those Peace Corps days and think about how can I break it down. And, of course, the situation with most Americans is not like that, but it's that basic um, level of understanding of the, of the civic process. 
But culturally, and I, 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 like I said, I totally, totally encourage African-Americans to join the Peace Corps. And a lot of times people want to go to Africa, countries in Africa. And what I've been told by some of my fellow RPCVs in, um, who are in African countries is that they go and they're expecting this huge homecoming and they're not, as, they're not being um, received as well as they expect when they go back to Africa. But the issue for me was even though Paraguay borders Brazil, which has a lot of, of course, people of African descent, it was difficult because of the ignorance in Paraguay. They were not used to seeing black people. Um, and the, the, what they did see of black people was often on TV um, where people were robbers. Like, and, it, and it's interesting because it's American, and that's why, I mean, I know I'm going all over the place, but that's why this goes back to media and American media. Yes. We still do this today. We have to be very careful about what we're exporting across the world because mm-hmm. you're, you're sending it to community, these little communities, and that's all they – so when I get there in 2000 thinking, you know, I've never experienced any discrimination or racism, I walk down the street and people are laughing at me and pointing at me because I'm dark. You know, and even though a lot of them are of Indian descent, so they're not exactly Aryan, but they're looking at me like because they. But it's but it it took me so long. So at first it was very painful because I'd never gone through anything like that. But then by the time I left, I was I had come you know 180 degrees and had to understand it was just their ignorance. I had to think about all the other factors that went into why I would be treated that way as I walked down the street. But I say all that to say it was an excellent experience. It taught me so much. And, you know, even even the Peace Corps was not quite as um, warm as I wanted them to be. I wanted to complain. I don't know what I thought that they would do, but I wanted to complain and, you know, they're not being nice to me. They're laughing at me, blah, blah, blah. But what I was able to do, again, I try, it's me trying to fill these gaps. I started two organizations, two Peace Corps organizations focused on, one on diversity, and we were able to bring diversity training. We did Kwanzaa celebrations. We did all that for the Peace Corps volunteers. And then we were also able to establish an African-American organization where we were able to go back and look up past African-American parents past African-American return Peace Corps volunteers who were in the United States who could share with us their experiences when they had been there in the 70s and the 80s and whatever. So um, just to reiterate, I strongly recommend um, African-Americans join the Peace Corps. It's great for the cultural experiences. It's a great network. You obviously learn another language, um, and there's absolutely nothing like it. That's really awesome. I'm I'm sitting here... uh... I'm writing down so many more keywords now to load into this show. Um, based on all the things we talked about, I had no idea would come up. But um, before we get too far um, away from the end of the show, um, I wanted you to go ahead and you know give your website and your other social media, your Facebook and all of that as well, just so that we you know don't let that slip away. Okay, um, my so I've got a few different <laughs> media. Uh, my website is www.virginialead.org. Uh, we are also on YouTube, which is under I think that's just under my name. Um, I do also have a local TV show in Arlington on Arlington Independent Media. So you have to be in Arlington to see it live. Um, it's called A Seat at the Table. Um, but we we try we put it on the YouTube channel, and then um, Facebook. I have um, a, a, a personal page, and I also have a fan page, and I also have Virginia Leadership Institute, and then Twitter. I think we are at VA Lead, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, oh, at VA <laughs> at VA Lead Institute for Twitter. Okay, very good, and um, please. Um, Post anything that you have coming up, like the event you have on, on June, um, June the twentieth, and um, if you can, yeah, just post it right on my page if you'd like. Um, and uh, we'd love to be able to support um, your efforts in any way we can. Um, feel free to, um, you know, come on again and invite someone else on that you probably are trying to help 
um, you know, with their media exposure, uh, I'm willing to, yeah. you know, help you out with that as well. And uh, if you can think of, cause you're a dynamo, you come up with ideas so quickly and, you know, <laughs> you really gave me a, a roadmap of who you are, the way you think and what you do and the, um, you're able to, to get the, um, the response that you're looking for, you're able to come up with these ideas, put something into motion and get exactly what you need or you think is needed in those situations. I find that amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and we met at a book fair yes. at Mount Zion and um, I'm just not sure if we had forgotten a book. But I just want to make oh, okay. sure. <laughs> so, no. Um, so, yes, yeah, same name as um, the TV show is Seat at the Table, Finding Your mm. Voice as an Advocate and a Political Leader. And basically, this is an e-guide. It's short. It's designed as a workbook. It's for, it kind of takes people on. Uh, well, I, the reason why I originally wanted to write this e-guide, because I felt like I was just acquiring so much knowledge, whether it was in the Peace Corps, whether it was working on, on Capitol Hill, working as a lobbyist, et cetera, and I really wanted to get it all in one place. And, you know, it really is designed more for, I think, the person who's trying to succeed in their, in their organization, trying to figure out, you know, how to – it's professional development skills, advocacy skills. We also obviously talk about running for office. And I have several of the people that I've met over the years, colleagues who give, you know, just a page, two pages worth of their feedback on particular topics. And why I think this e-guide is so interesting, particularly for a lot of us who've worked in organizations for a long time, and just like you started off saying, not, they may not be quite as effective as, as they need to be, it's because, you know, like I said, I've been on a lot of board, on a lot of boards, a lot of commissions, a lot of organizations, and I really feel like I've developed a few tricks of the trade. I mean, something as simple as an event. People don't think of the, the, the importance of putting on a good event, but then you realize if I can get the right people to that event, if I can get if I can design the event appropriately, that can really help the brand of my organization. That can help the influence of my organization. That can help me get things done. But we always think about you. Everyone has left an event and been said and said, "Oh wow, that was horrible," you know, and that just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I mean, I've heard of elected officials who just simply don't want to go to certain organizations' events every year. They absolutely dread it. That's not what you want. So that's just a mm. basic example of some of the things that we talk about. Etiquette, you know, like I said, executive presence, that's huge. We just had wow. a talk with one of my friends, uh, Nancy Finley Barber. She runs an organization called Code Success. It's primarily for professional development skills for the working woman. And she gave a great presentation to our fellows last week on the importance of executive presence. It's that comb- combination of you know, charisma, it's that of, of confidence and of appearance. And sometimes we don't, we can't quite put our finger on what it is about someone, but sometimes it's just that way they come across. It's that, it's that charisma, it's that confidence. And we, as, 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 and so, as someone in the business of trying to groom and prepare political leaders, I've got to figure out how to teach that to people because that can really make or break you. It's a lot right. more than about what comes out of your mouth but it's about how you just present yourself, the amount of influence, not only for elected officials, but if you're simply trying to be an advocate, you've got to be in the media. You've got to be on TV. You have to promote your cause. That's just as important as an elected official who's talking about a policy or running for office. So, you know, this, I really feel like this e-guide breaks down some of those basic things that a lot of people don't think about when they're trying to affect change and make their voice heard at the table. Wow. You know, as I said, Krista, you have all of the bases covered Um, and and you continue to drill down and make sure you have an answer for everything, so to speak, which is great. I mean, it is a complete solution because a lot of times that's what you get with an organization because they're, they're reaching out and they're trying to do good, but they either limit themselves because of um, means or they limit themselves because of, you know, expertise and um, it, it seems that you've always found a way to be able to to use the um, the wisdom that you've 
been able to gather over the years and, and put it to good use and share that with others. And I just think it's phenomenal. Most definitely. And you really hit on something right there about memes. People use that as an, as an excuse to not get something done often. And that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, I will tell you, VLI is a lot of, um, we're, we're, no one's getting paid currently. You know, this is all volunteer. This is people who are willing to share their experiences and their wisdom um, and their connections, which is huge, over the past several years and just help out fellows. I mean, a lot of what I do is really connecting people because I've really learned that in this town, in this world, relationships honestly do matter. So if I find someone who I can you know, have faith in or that I can really see them trying to do better and make a difference, I want to connect them to the people that I know and and include them in my network. So, you know, it's not always about the dollar. There are so many other ways that we can advance causes. Now, the dollar helps often, and I think you could argue that I could offer a different level of programming for more money, but, you know, I think there's a place for everything. Another thing I do want to say before we end is that we don't want to be exclusive to any one person. We encourage everyone who we train, who we impact, to go out to other programs as well. Everyone should be trying to amass as much knowledge as possible. We're just a piece of the pie to help you get to where you want to go. Wow. Well, and it's great that you say that as well because um, that, that lets people know they don't have to make a choice. You know, they, right. they can't say, well, I'm doing this, so I don't want to exactly. do this as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Wow, Crystal. I, I'm I'm just telling you, I'm I'm blown away. I'm really glad I've decided to do this, but it's just funny that we've been going to the same church for so long and yeah, know, we haven't had this conversation. <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is, it is. But you know, things happen at the right time. So, you know. Um and it's just really good. I'm really you know, excited about the work that you're doing. I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, hopefully attending this event as well as, um, you know, just, you know, supporting you in whatever way I can. So if you think of some creative ways that you think that I might be able to help, please, you know, pull on my ear. I'm willing to listen. That would be great. We honestly, honestly appreciate that. Thank you. All right, Krista. Well, well, thank you very much again. It's been a phenomenal show, and um, I'm really excited um, about having you on again in the future, and um, we just look forward to all the great things you'll be doing. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. All right. You have a great one. We'll talk with you soon. Okay. Thank you. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Today is just another day for most of us, but Yesterday, millions of exceptional, brilliant people decided that they were going to do something this day that would change their lives for the better and potentially the lives of hundreds more. Some even awoke with an unheard of sense of determination, focus, and vision, ready to leap forward and make that big change in their lives. In reality, most awoke pretty much the same way as most of us with today's office grind tasks checklists, calendars, and chores for the day as their primary concern. Sadly, some forgot yesterday's decision when they awoke, and others were just too afraid to try, and some just too stubborn to change, and many who forgot that tomorrow is not promised did not make it to see the sunrise today. I can't emphasize this enough. There is no time like the present. Whatever you want for your tomorrow, the effort has to start today. Better yet, right now. God has embedded in us a will and life purpose. We may succeed at any number of things, but this is the one thing that we can be assured to be much bigger than ourselves. It is our opportunity to accomplish the amazing, touch the lives of a multitude of people, and leave this world that we live in a much better place due to our efforts. Yeah, but first we have to take action. Take bold steps to crush our fear with confidence, destroy our insecurity with intense determination, and implement a decisive plan that will turn obstacles into minor adjustments and defeat into monuments of mistakes that we will never make again, all because of the wisdom we obtained that special day. You know what? 
There is no stopping people who truly care about the lives of others. I would dare say that they are invincible because nothing can destroy the human spirit. Why is it that I feature nonprofits and charities on my show so often? It's not just because that they are awesome and a rare breed of individuals. It's because they selflessly do the work that matters because others won't. And just because it's the right thing to do. How huge is that? But they do need your help. They first need you to be informed and aware. And I think we've taken care of that. Next, they need you to take action. Become a part of this solution. Or is today just another day? You already did something great today. You woke up this morning. The question is, who will you be today? Take a close look. Therein lies a measure of truth. Well, we just come to the end of another great show. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. Before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.